Good morning, Grace. It was good. I sat on the opposite side. I broke my pattern of where I always sit. There's all these wonderful people over here. I never get to greet. It was great this morning. I, I highly encourage you to do that on some Sundays. You might take a couple people off. The Earls had to move up forward once because I actually took their row. They said they were going to just scoot over into it while I'm preaching. So feel free. Feel free. Just put my bag on the ground. <laughs> Turn to Luke chapter 13, would you? We're going to read from here in just a minute. But as we start, I want, to, I want to take a line we just sang and tweak it a little bit. I think it's okay. Um, because it's, it's what Jesus wants to say to each one of us through this passage in Luke, I'm convinced this morning, in, in, in two simple phrases. So we just sang, we said to Jesus, where sin runs deep, your grace is more. But as an exercise at the beginning, I want you to imagine Jesus standing personally with you, putting his hand on your shoulder with love in his heart and his his eyes looking at you and saying to you, son, daughter, your sin runs deep. He tells us plainly, I appreciate this about Jesus He doesn't sugarcoat the honest truth of our sin, our failure. Your sin runs deep. But then he looks at you and he says, but my grace is more. Your sin runs deep. You need to know that and believe me when I say that. Agree with me. But also, my grace is more. Another way of saying that that came to my mind this last week as I've been studying this little passage and preparing to preach was... Words of John Newton. John Newton, if you don't recognize his name, wrote Amazing Grace, but he did a lot more than that. For years, he was a slave ship captain. And God turned his life so far around that he became an abolitionist and a pastor and an evangelist and hymn writer until his late years. And and as, as he was dying in his final days, these weren't his last words, but near the end of his life, when he was losing a lot of his memory, he had a friend visit him, and he told his friend, my memory is nearly gone. I didn't bring the remote, so can you just put that up, Rob? He said, my memory's nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner, and that Christ is a great Savior. I've been praying that phrase for each of us this week for this passage that there would be no one who leaves here who wouldn't agree with Newton except for yourself that you would be able to say with full conviction I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior now we're not all in the same place here this morning I realize some of us many of you who were just singing out um, enthusiastically you fully believe both those things You believe that you're a great sinner and you've come to see what a great Savior Christ is. And this text will just uh, impress that upon you more deeply this morning. But I'm not naive and I imagine that there might be some of you here or some who are watching. This is our live stream service, watching from home or wherever you're at. And you would say, if you're honest, I don't know if I believe either of those things. I don't particularly perceive of myself as a sinner or a great sinner. And I don't really understand the need for a Savior with a capital S or lowercase. 
maybe you would say, I sort of believe the second thing. Yes, Jesus is a great savior, but he's a great savior for really great sinners, and I don't feel like I'm a particularly great sinner. I mean, didn't Jesus say, uh, those who are well have no need of a physician, and I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners to repentance, and you don't particularly see yourself in that category. Jesus' question for you this morning is, are you as well as you think you are? But I also realize there's some of us here this morning, maybe frequently this is you on a Sunday morning, you totally believe the first thing. You don't need anyone to convince you that you're a great sinner. You you feel the weight of it and the guilt of it. You've carried it in here on your shoulders. And what's really hard for you to accept from the heart is that Christ is a great savior for you and his grace is more than your sin. What Jesus says in these nine verses speaks to all of you. And Lord willing, will nudge all of us to the point where we would agree with both those things. Christ is a great savior and I'm a great sinner. So let's read the passage. I want to pray for us and let's get to it. Luke chapter 13. As you'll see right at the beginning, he's picking up, this picks up right in the middle of an ongoing scene, which we'll talk about in a minute, but it begins chapter 13. There were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No. I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also. Until I dig around it and I put on manure. And then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, You can cut it down. This is God's word for us this morning. Let me pray. Lord, I pray this morning, these two things, that your spirit would help us be in full agreement with how you see our sin. That it's serious. That it deserves judgment. That it runs deep. And that we can't fix it. We can't cover it. We can't hide it. We can't earn our way back out of its guilt and we would understand very clearly as clearly as we ever have what Jesus has done to be the great savior who can and we'd run into his arms of grace this morning give us ears to hear Lord I pray in Jesus name amen 
All right, so look at how 13 starts. Right at the beginning, there were some present at that very time. So we should say, okay, what was happening right at this very time when some in the crowd say, hey, did you hear about what happened recently? So if we go back to last week, the passage Fred just preached, the way uh, Fred put it, Jesus had been just laser focused in that moment with the crowds about judgment day. And he had just finished telling this little parable with hopes he would impress all this crowd that they are like someone who's being dragged toward the judge by an accuser who has an open and shut case against them, but the accuser wants to settle with them, but they're on the way to the judge. As Fred put it, he's waiting to judge and he's willing to pardon, but they don't recognize themselves, I don't think, in that parable. They misunderstand, and some of them bring up this recent tragic event that has happened where some Galileans apparently worshiping, bringing sacrifices, blood sacrifices, Pilate ordered them killed, and their blood mingled with the blood of the sacrifices. There's this horrific act of violence, and, and some of them in the crowd bring that up. It's almost as if, as Jesus is talking about, you better settle up before you face the judge. Some of them are like, you mean like them, Jesus? They must not have settled in time, right? Like them? Have you ever been listening to a sermon and you thought, I know who needs to hear this sermon? And the answer isn't me. (laughs) That's them, I think, right here. At this very moment, and these ones in the crowd, they've misunderstood who deserves judgment. They've misunderstood what God's judgment really will entail. It's worse than they think. And they've misinterpreted their own good fortune and that they weren't among those who just died as reassurance that they aren't really great sinners who need a great Savior. So my three points, not mine, Jesus' three points this morning uh, aren't mincing words. Here's the three points Jesus wants us to get. Number one, we all deserve punishment. Or put it this way, we all deserve God's judgment. Second, God's judgment is worse than death, Jesus wants us to know. And here's the third amazing thing. And it's true as true right now in this moment for you today as we're, and me as we're sitting here with this as it was for the crowd listening to Jesus' words then. Today's not that day. Today is not the day of God's judgment. This moment right now is not that moment. That's amazing news. And it's evidence of the mercy and the slowness to anger of God and his love for you. So let's work through these points. Number one, we all deserve God's judgment. That's not a popular thing to say. It wasn't as popular for Jesus to make this point, I'm sure. And it's not popular for us to say in our day, we all deserve God's judgment. Jesus has a a question that he repeats twice and then gives an emphatic no that reveals that the crowds, at least the people who brought up this event, didn't think that everyone deserves God's judgment in the same way. So his first question, do do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? And I think the implication is they, they did. They did think they were worse sinners. They must have been. So Jesus brings up another recent event and said, well, what about those 18 people on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them and crushed them? 
do you think they were worse offenders, worse debtors before God than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? And the implication is they thought, yeah, I think they were. And Jesus emphatically twice says no. They'd wrongly assumed that they weren't in that category of worse sinner, worse offender. They wrongly believed that that tragedy that befell those Galileans and that tragedy that when that tower fell on those 18 was a sign of God's anger. That they must have been done something particularly bad for God to take them out in such a horrible way. And simultaneously, the, the assumption was because that didn't happen to us, we're not in the category of worse sinner or worse offender. And Jesus says, no. The world isn't full of two categories of people, really rotten sinners, and then the rest of sort of garden variety sinners who aren't really great sinners at all. In fact, you're doing all right in God's sight. When we try to define sin and our own sinfulness by relatively comparing it to worse sinners, the convenient thing is we can always find worse sinners that to our eyes look worse than us, right? It's amazing. Our world's got lots of <laughs> sinners, right? And it's easy to find someone and say, well, I'm not like that. I'm not that bad. But that's not how sin and guilt works. Romans 6.23 is very simple. The wages of sin is death. It's not the wages of certain sins, the wages of particularly heinous sins. It's not the wages of more cumulative sins. Just the wages of sin, full stop. Adam and Eve, the curse was spoken and pronounced after their very first act of rebellion against God. And the actual thing that they did, eating fruit, we would probably all say that's not a particularly heinous act, right? But what it was evidence of and what it was an expression of was high-handed rejection and rebellion against God, their loving, unholy creator. And in the very act of that sin, God pronounces the curse. The wages of sin is death. And all have sinned, Romans 3.23 says. All have fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, not one. So there are not worse sinners from this perspective in terms of deserving God's judgment as a righteous God. Jesus also says all here in our passage. He says twice, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now we'll come back to the unless part because that's where the really Good, uh, great savior part kicks in here is the unless. But don't miss the fact that unless there's an unless in Jesus' statement, we're all in the same boat. We all will likewise perish. No exceptions, no exemptions, no special categories. We're all great sinners and we all need a great savior. Maybe you don't see yourself as a great sinner this morning because you're the way you define sin is faulty. And you think like some of these in the crowd in terms of worse sinners. Maybe in your mind, there's some sort of list, top 10 list, doesn't have to be 10, whatever the number is, but there are these certain sins in your mind that are particularly evil things that a person can do or crimes a person commit 
And as long as you avoid those things and you generally try to do good to others and you just try to pay it forward as often as you can, that in the end, God is going to end up fairly happy with you, maybe even impressed if you try hard. I mean, if you're comparing to others, have you seen some of the people in our world? (laughs) And I'm not like them, but the first problem with that is Jesus said simply to restrain evil impulses of your heart in such a way that you don't actually carry out or exercise some of those top 10 list sins doesn't put you in the clear. In the, in, God, in the Gospel of Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking right to folks who think in these categories of worse sinners and they don't see themselves in that category. And it's pri- largely because on the outside, they look pretty clean. But he says to them, listen, just because the unrighteous anger and hatred that leads one person to murder is carefully restrained inside the volcano of your heart, in such a way that you merely nurse bitterness and envy and malice internally, or maybe it leaks out through some choice words on social media every once in a while, but those people really deserved it. That you're not liable to the same judgment. Jesus says it doesn't work that way. It's the same sinful heart and evil in the heart that is expressed in one way or the other. That doesn't mean the expression of murder does not take more than, than a hard word does. It doesn't mean that there's, there's no comparison. But at the end of the day, Jesus says it's the same, same evil intent, the same root. He says it about lust. He says the same uh, lustful intent that leads this person to cheat on their wife or husband and be unfaithful. Don't think that because you keep that desire safely tucked inside the boundaries of the brothel in your own mind, that you're less liable to judgment. Jesus says it's not, it doesn't work that way. You can be an adulterer in your heart. You can be a murderer in your heart. It's the heart issue that God sees. He sees what's in secret in our thoughts that maybe you keep hidden from everybody, but he sees it. And I think you see it and I see it. Sin runs deep, but it's even deeper than this. It may be your definition of sin is faulty at an even more fundamental level, at its, its very roots. Listen to this. Look at this from Romans chapter 1. Paul is really trying to describe what is it that makes sin sinful and worthy of receiving God's just wrath to fall on it. So he says, this is what the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against. This is what deserves God's holy wrath. He's not a tyrant to be angry. He's justified. He says, it's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. There's that word all again. And unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them all around in the world because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, and so they're without excuse. For, now check this out. For although they knew God, 
Notice where this sin lies, as he says, really at its heart. Although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Do you see what's ultimately deserving of God's wrath? It starts before it ever gets expressed by your hands and your mouth and your feet. It happens right in here. At its core, it's ignoring God and the world he made as someone made by God in his image to bear his image and to know him, enjoy him, glorify him forever. It's just living without reference to God. Or the way we we teach our kids in our children's ministry, it's saying to God, I'll be king. Thank you. You're dismissed. And this bears a penalty. It deserves God's wrath. It's understandable that the God who created the billions of galaxies that we recently saw even more amazing images of from that telescope, he created all of that and us. And for us to give him the back of our hand like this and say thank you, but no thank you, is an offense. That's how deep our sin runs. And I want you to consider this morning, in one sense, I'll explain this, you are the worst sinner you know. I don't mean that the ways you've expressed your sin in your life are more heinous than anyone out there. Yes, I've heard of Hitler. But what I mean is because you know all of your thoughts and all of the attitudes of your heart, you know all of those sinful impulses that often you keep locked here where no one can see them, but you see them in a way that you can't see them in anyone else because you can't enter into their mind and heart and know them. In that sense, you're the worst sinner you know. You know how deep your sin runs, even if you keep up a good appearance. Same's true for me, by the way. And if the penalty of that guilt is not dealt with, Jesus is saying, if you don't settle with your accuser because he has a solid case against you before you face the judge, you will bear the full penalty yourself. That's the sobering news that Jesus begins with here with this crowd. We all deserve God's judgment. Secondly, though, God's judgment will be worse than death. That's what Jesus says. When he says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He's saying there's something even worse than death. Sometimes the word perish can just refer to death, like what happened to the Galileans or the people the tower fell on. But think about it. Perish in Jesus' sentence right here can't mean just die a horrible death. That can't be what he means by likewise perish. Unless you repent, a tower is going to fall on you. Unless you repent, Pilate's going to call for your murder. He doesn't mean that. Because he implies that if you do repent, you will not perish. And we know it's true that you can repent and you will die until Jesus returns, right? In fact, you can repent truly from the heart and even die horribly. Natural evil is still a thing in our world and wars still happen and earthquakes still happen and buildings still fall and people are martyred even for the name of Jesus. So perish is something bigger than death, beyond death, and worse than death. Perishing is something greater. By likewise, I think what Jesus means is in the same way that those Galileans woke up that day and had no idea the horrible end their life was about to come to, in the same way those people who were walking past the tower one minute 
had no idea the horrible tragedy that was about to befall them, God's judgment will come the same. It will be horribly tragic and unsuspected and worse than death. I want us to see a couple of places in the, in the Bible that come alongside what Jesus is saying here to tell us there is something beyond death that's worse than death. Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed for man, that means each individual person, to die once. And after that comes judgment. It's appointed for man to die once, but there's something that's after that, and it's judgment. So what comes after that? What is judgment? Well, if you look ahead here at this parable of the fig tree, which we're going to get to in detail in a minute, the equivalent to perishing in the parable is to be cut, for the tree to be cut down, right? For those of you who've been here long enough, we've been in the Gospel of Luke for some time. If you flip back to chapter 3 of Luke, it's the same imagery, the same language that John the Baptist was used, trying to encourage crowds to prepare the way for Jesus who was coming, preaching and, and baptizing people for the baptism of repentance. Can you put that slide up, Rob? John the Baptist said, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't begin to say to yourselves, uh, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you, God's able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. You're on the way to the judge with the accusers. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So as John presses the analogy in his preaching, he says there's something beyond being cut down, and he likens it to being thrown into the fire. Flip back to where we're at in Luke. Right at the end of chapter 12, I think it's what Jesus hints at when he says the one who fails to settle with the accuser on the way to the judge and faces judgment will be put in prison, is the language of that parable, into a state of judgment that they will not be able to find their way out of. When we compare what Jesus says about perishing in John and Matthew, Jesus says perishing is the antithesis of eternal life. But it's not just annihilation, dying and being gone forever, but even in Matthew 25, it's synonymous with eternal punishment. It's a judgment that lasts. This is heavy. This is what God's judgment will be. And what will this punishment consist of? Jesus, as you probably know, did not shy away from preaching about hell, preaching about God's judgment and using figurative language to try to communicate its horror. How awful it would be to experience the wrath of God. And he piles up images like darkness and unquenchable fire and decay and weeping and gnashing. And you might think, wow, that's just figurative language. But it's figurative language that's trying to communicate something very real and literal. The most concrete and non-figurative description I can think of in the Bible for what this punishment will be comes from Paul in 2 Thessalonians 1.9. Would you put that up there, Rob? It's to suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. Just try to imagine that. Just try to imagine one day experiencing the total 
absence of the presence of the Lord, the common grace of the Lord, and all that we enjoy of that, even right now today if you don't believe in him. And being removed from that presence and that glory in totality, not just for one day, but forever. The very thing the Bible says we were created for, to know God and to enjoy Him and His presence forever, is the thing that will be absent forever. It's really, it's beyond our comprehension. This is what we deserve It's worse than death, and it should convince us we are great sinners and that we need a great Savior. So the question then is, is God a great Savior? Because maybe as you're hearing some of this, you're thinking God sounds like a monster. God sounds like he's quick to anger. He's abounding in wrathful vengeance. He's ill-tempered. He's hair-triggered. He loves to punish. He's vindictive. He takes cruel pleasure in judgment. Maybe you've grown up with or or carried around this notion of God that he's like that. But you're wrong. And this parable Jesus tells is to help you see how wrong you are. And to be more shocked at the mercy and patience of God that you are at the idea that God might judge. That you'd actually say, I can't believe he doesn't judge. I can't believe how often. Psalm 7 verse 11 says... Our God is a righteous judge who feels indignation every day. Can you imagine the indignation of God as he looks at the whole earth with its billions of people and all the wickedness that happens on this earth, seen and unseen, every day, every hour, every minute, the indignation of God, it should blow us away that he hasn't blown us away, right? Look at this parable. That's what this parable is wanting us to say, is to marvel at how slow to anger God is, how patient he is. The parable is about the word unless, in verse 3 and verse 5, unless you repent. The word unless reveals that God is incredibly merciful. God does not owe any of us an unless. He'd be perfectly justified to just simply judge us for our sin. And no one could fault him. He would not be unrighteous for doing so, but nevertheless, he gives us an unless. At great personal cost to himself. He so loved the world, he gave his only son. Jesus is God's unless in the flesh. Listen to John 3, 17. We know God, John 3, 16, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish, there's our word, but have everlasting life. But listen to the very next line. What did God send first, wrath or mercy? God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Think about this. We're here in Luke 13. We're just a few pages away from Jesus finally arriving in Jerusalem. And also, at Pilate's order and command, he's going to be stripped naked, beaten within an inch of his life, scourged, with a crown of thorns driven onto his head in mockery that he claims to be the king of kings. Blood will run from his hands and his feet as he's pierced to a wooden cross. He's executed as the absolute worst of the worst of criminals. 
and he'll finally breathe his last. He will die. They'll pierce his side. Blood and water will flow out, proving that he's died. His body will be carried down and laid in a borrowed tomb. And you know what probably happened the next day around Jerusalem among many? The talk of many the next day was probably, surely that man must have been the worst. Surely that man must have been the worst of sinners to have suffered in that way. But they'd be wrong, right? No, I tell you. That man was offering his innocent life as a sacrifice in the place of even the worst of sinners so that even the worst of sinners, I'm the worst one I know, if I repent and believe in him in my place, will not perish but have everlasting life. And on Sunday, Jesus walked out of an empty tomb, risen, alive, proving that death had no claim on him because he was innocent and his life had been given in the place of others to bear our judgment and wrath, not his own. And he walked out of the tomb, alive and glorious, to offer the free gift of God's unless to the world. so that you could repent and escape his judgment and receive his eternal mercy and love forever. That's the good news of great joy for all people in the Gospel of Luke. That the righteous judge who feels indignation every day has offered us this unless by the blood of his son Jesus should take our breath away. He's a great savior isn't he? In fact, his preference is that you would choose his unless. Second Peter 3.9 says that God is patient toward you. He's not wishing that any would perish, but that all should reach repentance. His preference is that you would choose his mercy rather than his wrath. He's rooting for you. <laughs> Don't pick that. Pick this. And this parable that we're going to close with, that Jesus closes with, said the same thing to the crowd that day that it's saying to you right now this morning as you sit in here. Today's not the day of God's judgment. We all deserve it. It will be worse than death, but today is not that day. Or to borrow Fred's wording from last week, God is waiting to judge and he's willing to pardon. That's how he stands for you right now. He's willing to pardon. He wants to pardon. Let's look at the parable again. Here's this man, he has a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and he found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit from this fig tree and I find none, so cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? First thing I want us to notice, I want to stop mid-parable. The vineyard owner would have been perfectly justified at this point in the parable to just cut the tree down. If Jesus' parable ended at verse seven, that would not have been a bad parable. It wouldn't have been an untrue parable, let's put it that way. The vine, that's the point of saying for three years, plenty of time had been allowed to show this tree is fruitless. And when you add to that, that it's only been using up nutrients from the vineyard and nothing to show for it, the vineyard owner would have been well within his rights in the parable to, to get rid of the fig tree that was sucking the resources and move on. But the fact that there's more of this parable is the unless in the parable, right? 
The second thing to notice is what, go, what happens next. He answered the vine dresser, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. And then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. You see the unless in the parable? Then if it should bear fruit, well and good. The second thing to notice is that the point at which the, vine, the vineyard owner would have been perfectly justified in judging, bringing judgment upon the tree, not only does he give it more time, but he actually invests more resources. This tree that has only been using up the resources and nutrients of the ground, he says, let's give it more. Let's dig around the roots. Let's add fertilizer. Let's give it every possible chance to bear fruit. There's still time. There's still hope. And the third thing I want us to understand is I, I think in this parable, God is both the vineyard owner and the vine dresser. Kind of like last week in, in Fred's parable he preached, there's this accuser you know, bringing you toward the judge and, and Fred pointed out, God is both the accuser, the one against whom we've sinned, who has a case against us, but God is also the judge before whom we're gonna stand. He's both. And he's waiting to judge, but he's willing along the way to pardon. In the same way, I think, in this parable, we shouldn't think of it Overly simplistically, God the Father is not the vineyard owner and he loves cutting down trees. He's angry and he's just ready to like this. But Jesus the Son, he's the vine dresser and he says, Dad, 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 he talks him down. Let's give it one more year. The Father and the Son aren't at odds. The vineyard owner and the vine dresser aren't at odds in this parable. They both come to agreement by the end of the parable on two things. One is, let's give it more time and nutrients. Let's wait. Let's postpone the decision. But they're also in full agreement that we'll give it another year, but then if there's no fruit, we will cut it down. God's patience will not last forever, not because he'll run out of it, but in his just Mercy or his just righteousness, he knows when judgment is, it is time, right? God the Father, God the Son are both on board with the slow to anger plan with this fig tree. And the parable shows it. God's glory will be seen when he judges. God's glory is seen when he shows mercy. And what should stun us is it seems that God's disposition, he leans toward, the way he leans toward from his heart is to delay judgment so that you might choose mercy. He won't do so forever, but is his slowness to anger blowing you away this morning? I hope it is. So if today isn't the day of God's judgment, today is the day to repent. You have no guarantee of tomorrow. But you're here right now. The fact that you're breathing, tower didn't fall on you on the way to church, God is giving you time. He's calling you. If you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Yes. So how do you repent? Well, repentance happens, to take John Newton's phrase again, when you become convinced from the heart sincerely that you are a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior, and then you respond accordingly. What does that look like? Well, Here's one, here's one suggestion about what this kind of repentance looks like. Thomas Watson was another Puritan pastor and author, and writing on repentance, he suggested this is what this kind of repentance, saving repentance involves. It begins with a sight of sin, that you see your sin as God sees your sin. No spin, 
No flattering lighting, no rationalizing or justification, but in, 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 in its depth, you, you see it and you agree with God about his verdict. But it includes sorrow for sin. It's not just a desire to escape the judgment of God. It's seeing sin now in light of who God is and saying, I'm sorry, God, against you and you alone have I done what's evil in your sight. I feel sorrow for it. And it involves then confession, like Psalm 51, where David then says to God, God, hide your face from my sins. Wash me thoroughly. Cleanse me from my sin. It includes shame over sin. I think of the prodigal son story. He finally hit a point where he, he, he admitted, I'm not worthy to be called your son, Father. That's true. But he trusted in the love and the mercy of the Father, right? Shame for sin draws us to Christ who then covers our shame and removes it. Repentance includes hatred of sin, increasingly that we hate what God hates in us. And we want to run from it. We turn from it. We put it in the rearview mirror. It doesn't mean we never sin again. If you're a Christian, you know this. But it does mean in a decisive way, we've come to realize there's no life in sin. I want to leave it. And the flip side of that then is responding to the second truth, that Christ is a great Savior. How do you turn from your sin? Well, you run to Christ. You run to him in faith. You recognize what he did at the cross to pay the penalty of your guilt. You acknowledge that he's the only great savior. It's not you and me, Jesus, as a team effort. The only way I will not perish is because you paid it all. And we ask God to forgive our sin in Jesus' name on his account. And he promises to do it and to give us his spirit and to help us now from the heart begin to run from sin and leave it behind and follow Jesus. So as we close, I want to I address, in the terms of the parable, there, there's two kinds of us in here. There, there are still unfruitful fig trees and there's fruitful fig trees. <laughs> and I want to make an appeal to unfruitful fig trees. If you recognize this morning, I think he's talking about me. Not me, but Jesus in this parable. I think that's me. God's shown me a lot of mercy and kindness and grace in my life, so much more than I realize I deserve. And I'm still sitting here breathing and healthy and alive this morning. And there's no fruit of, of honoring him as God in my life, living my life in reference to him as though he's king. I'm the unfruitful fig tree, and I want to make an appeal to you that today's the day. I want you to even think about your life right now, even this last week or this last month. Do you recognize that God has been digging around you and fertilizing you, to use the parable language? He's been at work to arrange the events of your life in ways to help unstop your ears to the goodness of his mercy and kindness. He maybe has brought people into your life who have been sharing this with you. Maybe you're here in this room because of their invitation. He may even have been shaking some of the things in your life that are your treasured possessions that you've made your life all about to remind you those things don't last forever and there's only one invulnerable treasure and it's Christ and do you know him? And the big tragedy would be for you to recognize the merciful patience of God around you, drawing you to himself, and you to leave here and say, no, thank you. I'd love to talk with you more and pray with you after the service, but you don't have to wait for that. Right now, you can say to the Lord, I'm a great sinner. 
Jesus is a great Savior. Forgive me in his name. Help me to walk in new life. And you can start. Last, two brief encouragements to fruitful fig trees. I want to go back to John the Baptist in, in Luke chapter 3, verse 8. He said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance isn't just the entry gate into the Christian life. It's the totality of the Christian life. The entire trajectory of the Christian life is one of leaving sin behind, growing in one degree of glory to another into the renewed image of Jesus as he makes us into it. And it happens as we bear fruit in keeping with repentance. John 15, 8 says, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. He didn't, he, he didn't pour all that investment into just pop out one fruit of repentance. All right, good. He wants, you to bear, he wants your life to bear much fruit of repentance. And we don't manufacture it ourselves. We abide in him. And he abides in us. And by doing so, we bear much fruit. So don't get discouraged. If God was patient enough with you, to show you his patience to lead you to repentance, he's going to be patient with you as you bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And last one is just this. I don't want to miss the opportunity to, to connect the dots between the first E and our mission statement that we talk about every week, engage. As a church, our mission is to engage and evangelize our world. It's because we serve the vine dresser. That's who we are as the church. We're in the service of the vine dresser. And he's given time to dig around and to fertilize and to plant seed and to water so that people would turn to repentance and come to Christ and be saved. But it doesn't just start with evangelizing, sharing the message of our great Savior and why we're a great sinner who needs him. But it starts even before that with engaging. This is primarily in our mind when we think of engage. Romans 10, 14, and 15. Think about this chain. How will anyone call on him as a great savior in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe if they've not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? That's evangelism. That's opening our mouths to share the good news about the great savior and our great sin. But there's one more question, Paul says. Well, how are they to preach unless they're sent? And one of the things as believers that I, we want to be thinking about is with whom does God want you to engage? Who's near you in your life in proximity that probably doesn't know Jesus is a great savior, doesn't realize they're a great sinner, and there's no one else in their life right now through whom that truth would come. The first step in that person becoming a disciple is you engaging them and building a relationship. People on your street, you don't even know their name yet. That might be the very first step in being used by the vine dresser to save unfruitful fig trees. So we'd be praying, even in our grace groups today, Lord, with whom are you sending me out to engage? That's step one. Take a minute. We're going to close here with a song together in just a second, but I want to give you a minute to be quiet and ask the Lord, Lord, what did I need to hear this morning? Not what did someone else need to hear, but me. And in light of that, pray. Ask for his help to respond to this passage from Jesus in a believing way. And then we'll close and sing.